was like, <laughs> yeah, it's been a month since I've been here, and um, I started off by saying it was a good month, thanks to the Board of Elders for letting me actually take uh, the whole month off. Usually I don't preach in July, as some of you might remember, but uh, this was different. Um, I actually got away. We were out of town almost the entire time. Um, my wife and I were together pretty much 24-7 for a month, and our marriage survived. So that's really good news. We only had one major argument, and it was over my driving. So you know who was wrong there. Um, <laughs> you can ask her what she thinks. Um, at any rate, I, while I was away, uh, I heard that the chairman of the board got up and announced my uh, departure for a month and said that I was not supposed to respond to any emails and that if I did, you were supposed to tell him. And so if I did, don't, okay? Um, I may have responded to an email or two, um, but I did respond to one, and I thought it was a trick in retrospect. I um, got right down the end of my time, and I got an email from Rob Kunzman, the chairman of the board. And he was asking about details concerning the upcoming elder meeting, which happened on Thursday right after I got home. And I responded to him. And his response was, this was a test, and you failed. <laughs> it's like, man, it's tough. But anyway, it's good to be home. Um, it's good to be back with you uh, and celebrate the goodness of God. We've been in a series, as you know, for a very long time, longer than any other series at ECC since I've been here. Um, the series was entitled, or still is entitled, Ancient Stories and Contemporary Truth. And we've been looking at Old Testament stories for a full year. I can't believe it's been a full year, but we started it beginning of the first semester last year. So we're trying to wrap it up. And as you know, there's really not a lot of time left to wrap it up if we're going to start a new series in the fall. So the idea that I had was to wrap it up by summarizing the rest of these stories with this, three words from the prophets. Now, it won't be just from Isaiah or just from Ezekiel. Three words from the prophets to us about the future and about the past, of course, since it's history. Those three words, I'll tell you right up front. Of course, they're more than three words, but three words, figure of speech. The first one is the one for today. The first word is you are loved by God. That's what the prophets, among other things, said to the people of Israel. Israel? You are loved by God. In spite of the fact that calamity has befallen you, in spite of the fact that my heavy hand has been upon you, you're loved by me. So week one, you're loved by God. The second week is the second word from the prophets. And it's this, I will redeem. The third week is the third word from the prophet. There is hope. You are loved, I will redeem and there is hope. Now we could look at that, explore those ideas from the prophets in the context of this piece of ancient history called the Old Testament. Appropriate, and we will. But if we stop there, we would stop short, surely. You believe that. The words of the prophets, as we've said all along, the words of the Old Testament are ancient stories with contemporary truth, so they speak then and they speak now. But more than that, the words of the prophets that we will look at for the next couple of weeks are words that speak also about Jesus. 
Their prophetic concerning his first coming with the prophet had not yet seen. And they're still prophetic concerning his second coming that we have not seen. So the tapestry of these prophets, Isaiah especially, sort of the high pinnacle point of the prophets, you have these themes woven through, themes that are contemporary, themes that are ancient, themes that are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we saw some of their fulfillment, and themes that are yet to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he brings everything together and makes all things new. Now, all of that is not just to finish a series, and this will be the end of my introduction. It's to set up a new one. Because in these prophetic revelations, we see shadows of Jesus. And our new series beginning in the fall as the students return is going to be from the Gospels. And the title of the series is Rediscovering Jesus. So we want the prophets to point us ahead to Jesus. And then we want to study the Gospels together to rediscover the Jesus that the prophets spoke of. Just one more thing. This has never happened before either. You know what the name of the series in connection is on Sunday night, first semester? Rediscovering Jesus. <laughs> There's enough gospel stories that they're not overlapping. But on Sunday morning when we're rediscovering Jesus, it gives us ample opportunity to point to a theme that's yet developed and say, tonight in connection, for those of you who are college students, we're going to think more about Jesus. Who could get too much of Jesus, right? That's what we thought. So that's where we're going. But for today, I, I begin by a question. A question for you that I think probably has a pretty obvious answer. It's this. Have you ever been absolutely overwhelmed by life, by circumstances. Sometimes circumstances that you introduce to yourself. Sometimes circumstances that were completely outside your control. People that are in authority over you. Something that entered your life that you absolutely never expected and were overwhelmed by. I would like to suggest that the prophet, that you just heard his words, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord, is speaking to a group of people who are absolutely, completely overwhelmed by life. Here's why. There's a slide that's coming up here to show you what they were experiencing. You see the, the colored in area? By the way, that's gigantic. Iraq and Iran are up there in the north. It's a huge arch. It's what the ancients called the world. And it was conquered and ruled by the Assyrian Empire. It's enormous. See the arrow out to the left in the Mediterranean Sea? Points to a little sliver of land called Israel. They were conquered by that empire. They lived under the heavy hand of that empire. People from their country had been deported far to the east in that empire. And they were absolutely overwhelmed. 
We have few parallels to that in our own contemporary world where our nation is completely overwhelmed. I mean, we have catastrophic events that one can remember. The first, of course, that comes to mind is 9-11 for those of us who lived through that and remember it. Your calendar may be more lengthy than mine and you remember other events like Pearl Harbor. But you know what we've never seen? What they saw. We've never seen a foreign nation invade our land systematically, bit by bit, and march like an ongoing parade of locusts devouring the land right up to the center of culture, the epicenter of life, and systematically tear it apart. It would be like foreign invaders marching slowly up our shores standing on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, the center of our governing life, and dismantling it beam by beam, watching that giant basilica collapse and lie in ruins of ashes. That's what they'd witnessed. It was called the temple. The heart of life for them the one place where God dwelt more than any other place. The almighty God that had heaven and earth under his control. Kaposh! It's over. It's smashed. Yeah, they were overwhelmed. Absolutely. And into that context, Isaiah, projecting ahead, speaks these words. Comfort, comfort my people. Your days of long service are over. Your sin has been atoned for. And I'm going to put it all back together. And I'm going to carry you like a shepherd carries a sheep in my arms. Comfort, my people. It's a word from God that basically goes this, this way. My people, you're loved. Even though... You've been disciplined. Oh, remember, he doesn't mix it up and just play Pollyanna here. He says, the punishment, the discipline was from me. Oh, yeah, the Assyrians, they were a mighty force of evil, but they were a mighty force of evil in my hand. I allowed it to happen, and I disciplined you with their heavy iron. The consequences of their sin, you see, that are culminated in this Babylonian, Assyrian conquest, they're hundreds of years old. This didn't happen overnight. As a matter of fact, you could go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy and hear Moses tell the people, warn the people, if you follow God, God will protect you, God will make you prosper. Not everything's going to be perfect, but God's going to be with you. But if you don't and you walk away from God, God in effect will just walk away from you and you'll suffer the consequences of your own foolishness, your own stupidity by running after gods and other gods of other people will be your rulers. I'm telling you, says God, over and over and over again, that's what will happen. And the people of Israel, over and over and over again, prove God right. 
with the judges, with the kings, and now this culmination with Assyria. And God speaks through the prophets, and he says, yes, your severe, harsh punishment, which came to you after hundreds of years of leaving and returning, is finally over. You know what else God is saying in the book of Isaiah and in other prophets? The punishment is not for destruction. It's for restoration. I didn't do this to squash you like a bug. I did it to restore you. I allowed your sinful waywardness to affect you adversely so that I could reach out in grace and mercy and show you how much I loved you and restore you. It's not about destruction. It's about restoration. Uh, Let's pause for a minute. Punishment. Discipline. Not a popular theme, right? Who likes it? Nobody. But what's worse is some people think it absolutely contrary to the character of God. It's not contrary to the character of God. It's what God does. I love a quote by C.S. Lewis, um, which, by the way, I hardly ever do this. I've got to get back to it. I tweeted out this week. Here's the, here's the quote. Love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. Wow, isn't that rich? Love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. Mere kindness is just, oh, be well, I'll see you later. Mere kindness might even be random, and it might feel good. Mere kindness is not a bad thing, but love, love is far more splendid and stern than mere kindness. Why? Because true love, it speaks to our condition, and frequently, It wounds in order to restore. My best friends are those who speak truth into my life, sometimes in what might seem a harsh way, in order to restore me to the person they know God wants me to be, and they want me to be, and ultimately I want to be. It also reminds me of a proverb, Proverb 27, verse 6, says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The kisses of an enemy just gloss over reality. The wounds of a friend are meant to heal. Let me pause and um, make a comment that I rarely make related to (coughs) our culture, (coughs) children and parents. Permissiveness in the life of a child is not a good thing. Loving discipline 
in the life of a child is. As a matter of fact, if we are altogether permissive as parents and we do not implement loving discipline, okay, use the word punishment. If we don't do that, we are not laying a good soil for understanding in a mature way the love of God. Because as the epistle to the Hebrews says, those that God loves, He disciplines. If in the life of your child, you as a parent are too weak or philosophically unable to discipline, you do not set up a life for your child that understands the discipline and love of God that will come and introduces them to a mature faith. But off of that and on to the next point, the first was that we know we are loved by God because we're loved even though we're disciplined. The second point, we know we're loved by God because God pursues us even when we're wayward. And here I just cast forth the whole book and summarize it in a very short order. It's the book of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet, and the prophet is called by God to take a wife who's a prostitute and to love her. And God says, in effect, your wife's going to run away from you over and over again. She's going to be with other men. She's going to leave the confines of your love and seek love somewhere else. And what I want you to do, Hosea, is just keep going after her. I want you to be devoted to her even though she's not devoted to you. I want you to call her your wife even though she doesn't act like it. I want you to woo her over and over and over again. Not once, not twice, but repeatedly. You know, the prophets were given some weird assignments. I'm just glad I wasn't Hosea. I didn't, I didn't want to sign up for that one. But Hosea said, okay, God, I'll do it. Why am I going to do it? You might ask, I'm going to do it because this is God, God says showing Israel how much he loves them. You repeatedly wander away like a person who leaves a love relationship and goes out in prostitution. You leave home altogether. You pursue the wrong kinds of gods. And I'm going to keep coming after you like Hosea does his wife. I'm going to keep wooing you and pulling you back. You're loved so much that I am going to be the husband who never quits. The lover who never gives up. That's an amazing picture that God gives us of his love. And he gives us through the prophets. That was the picture of Israel that he painted. There's a third reason that we know that we're loved by God. If we're the people of God and Israel heard they were loved by God, it's, it's this. You're loved by God. And here's the proof. You're spared even though you're guilty. Not only are you loved even though you're disciplined, not only are you wayward and I continue to pursue you, but you're spared of the wrath of sin. The guilt that is yours is removed. And how? I want to read you uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, not the whole of either chapter, but parts of each. You'll recognize these words. See my servant, Isaiah speaking to the people, the wayward people, 
the ones who are off in exile. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there are many who are appalled at him. His appearance will be so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, by the way, with blood, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. There was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we deceived him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet, yet, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was crushed for our transgressions. He was pierced or crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace on us was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned from his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and a sheep before shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgression of my people, he was stricken. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. It must have seemed like a strange message. Out of nowhere, Isaiah prophesies someone who would be Deliverer and Redeemer. And he says, this one's going to be a suffering servant. Suffering servant. Deliverer. Redeemer. They'd never seen anyone in history like this, nor had anyone else. Oh, yes, there were sacrificial leaders, but not this kind. The suffering servant. The pathway to exaltation for this servant was humiliation. Completely counterintuitive. The road to victory was absolute devastating defeat and death. The remedy for the problem, their sins, was not to punish them for their sins inevitably, but to take their sins on himself and let those sins... Those sins, not his own, destroy him. That's the deliverer? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not, says Isaiah. That's the deliverer. Can you imagine how dumbstruck they must have been? Yeah, who could understand that report? No wonder they rejected it. They didn't understand. 
Now, looping back around, just a couple of points for application. First, it's this. God will let you and I suffer. Discipline, yes, punishment for our own good. And it's proof of his love for us. He doesn't intend to destroy. He intends to restore. Now, I want to say something else about these people and that theme. You know not everyone in Israel was wavered? Not everyone had left God for other gods? There were people we know from the prophets that were faithfully following God, and they were taken into exile. There were people who were faithfully following God, no doubt who were killed when the Assyrians overtook the nation of Israel. There were people who did not deserve the punishment. But as a result of the punishment of God on the people, they suffered. So, where are you? I mean, in that suffering thing, Maybe you're at a place and you say to yourself, but God, I didn't do it. <laughs> What's this all about? I'm suffering really the consequences of somebody else's sin in a way. Well, first of all, no, because we all are sinful. But yes, because I didn't do it. And God says to you, this suffering can be used for discipline to shape you into the person I want you to be, and you want to be. Stay with me. I love you enough to allow you to suffer. And in the words of my apostle, God might say, all things are going to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. The suffering may come. It may not be you, but God will work good out of it. I just have a feeling, it's not hard to be real insightful to come up with this one, is there uh, real ample evidence for it when you look around, that there's people out there that are now suffering inordinately because of the foolishness of another. You didn't do it, but God can still use it. I don't know how, but he can and he will if you stay with him. Second point of application for us is this. Um, God will continue to pursue you in spite of your foolishness, right? He does it all the time. We're always running after other gods. Okay, let's just call them what they are, other gods. We're always going after them. And God, like this loving husband, continues to go after us and pursue us and woo us back. It happens all the time. It's the story of your life. Embrace it. Hear the call of the one who loves you deeply and come back wherever you are, wherever you've strayed. But there's something else, a practical application I want to encourage you with. I'm, I'm sure there are people here who are listening to this story and saying to themselves, I, I love someone a lot. You may even be saying to yourself, I birthed them. 
I gave my life to them. I did everything I could to nurture them in the love of God. And I know as children and as maybe young adults, they followed. And now they're in the desert. They're out there beyond my control, that's for sure. And they're out there wandering from the person who loves them even more than me, which is God. And it's breaking my heart. I understand it will break our hearts. But listen to this text. Not in the context of just you, but in the context of those that you love. And believe that God, the lover of their soul, is pursuing them wherever they are. And now if you're a parent, it's time to switch your role. You know what it was like. I I know what it was like. When my children were little, I could control everything. I could fix it all. The punishment and the discipline was very well defined. For the most part, nobody else could do it but me. I don't do that anymore, nor do you if you're my age. But you may have somebody out there. Maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's just somebody you love. And you want so much to reach out with a lasso of your love and pull them back and discipline them yourself. Don't. Take a deep breath. Stop. Let God do his work. And pray that they will hear the voice of a loving God who loves them more than you and can reach them better than you. Because that's what God does. Final thing is this. The most beautiful passage in Isaiah is 52 and 53 for the Christian. The one I read at the end. How can you read that passage about the suffering servant without seeing Jesus all over the pages? Everything about Christ just leaps off the page. Thanks be to God. It was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ as the church has embraced it for centuries. And it's a prophecy that's true for you and for me. But it is counterintuitive, isn't it? Why should God assume our responsibility? Why should God suffer and die for our sins? But that's the story of the New Testament. It's the glory of grace. It's your gift that God gives you that you're asked to receive. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. But oddly, at the same time, there's an intuitive recognition of it in our hearts. And even buried in our culture, among those who may not profess the same Lord that you profess, open your eyes for this counterintuitive story of grace. And I think you'll find it. I'm not a big fan of the author Stephen King. Know very little about him but some, enough to know a novel that he wrote called The Green Mile and enough to have seen it as a movie. Again, I don't know what Stephen King's motivation for such 
a book and then later a filmmaker's motivation for a film was. But if you ever watch that film, you're going to see a character in it who stands as the principal character. His name is John Coffey, a huge mountain of a man who could have snapped in half any of the wardens in the prison or other prisoners around him, but never did. Convicted of a crime he never committed, walking towards execution for something that was not his responsibility. And along the way, as the story unfolds, John Coffey, oh, by the way, initials J.C. You think that's not maybe there for a reason? John Coffey is identified as a person who has healing hands. And he starts to heal all kinds of people, including the warden who's in charge of the entire prison and his wife and others. There's something else about John Coffey that's remarkably unusual. John Coffey reaches out and it's like he takes the disease that destroys and ingests it into his own body. And as it plays out, you can see it becoming his demise. And before it's all over, the warden played by Tom Hanks realizes John Coffey's not guilty for the crime at all, but Coffey walks the green mile to execution and pays for a penalty that is not his own. When you look at the movie, eyes of a Christian, I must admit, I look at it and I say, there's a story. A story of ugliness and sin and hate and deceit and lying and murder. And in the middle of that story, there's got to be a solution somewhere, God, please. And there is no solution anywhere until this man appears and ingests the evil into himself and dies to make it a better world. I know the parallels break down. I'm not so foolish as to say it's perfect theology. But when I look at it, I can't help but see Jesus. Here's my suggestion. In the drama of life, if the Scripture is true, the embedded story of grace, the image of Jesus, is everywhere. If we have the eyes of faith to see it, to accept it, and to follow. What's so great about this is that we've got the story and that it makes sense, and that it's real. And we get to celebrate it every Sunday, but especially on a Sunday like this, as we take the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. God of grace and glory, we thank you for descending into the person of Jesus Christ, 
and entering into the sinfulness of our human condition in a cosmic way, but also into the sinfulness of our human condition in a personal way and assuming the role of that suffering servant. We thank you, God, that among other things, it's a demonstration of your love, just like discipline is and just like running after us is when we're wayward. But this one, the ultimate demonstration of your love and assuming the guilt of our sins so that we may be freed of them. We thank you, Lord, um, for doing that for us. Uh, We thank you for the reminder of that particularly poignant in the Lord's Supper each Sunday that we celebrate it. And we pray that the truth of your great and deep love for us will stir our hearts, our imagination. You will waken our spirits to see your love everywhere around us. And you will help us in the light of that love to share it with others. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.